If you will recall, last week we took a look at one of the prophets by the name of Amos. And Amos's prophecy focused primarily on the northern tribes after the division of Israel, where ten northern tribes went together and two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained together, and there were two separate kingdoms. The prophecy that Amos brought that we looked at last week was a prophecy announcing judgment that was going to fall on the northern kingdoms. And that judgment fell in 722 B.C., The Assyrian army came into the northern kingdom, took those people captive, left some in the land, and brought people from other kingdoms that the Assyrians had captured into that northern region of Israel. And the people of Israel began to intermarry with them and began to mix their uh, faith and their religious observances with the paganism of those who had been brought into that land. About 135 years later, in that area... Another judgment fell on the southern tribes. Judah and Benjamin were brought under God's judgment at the hand of the Babylonians. And Babylon at this time had conquered the Assyrians. They now had brought their armies into the southern regions of Israel and conquered them. God had promised that in that southern campaign, in that southern overthrow of the kingdom, There would be a restoration one day. There was no restoration in the northern kingdom. But there would be a restoration in the southern kingdom. The kingdom that was of the descent of David. And that restoration was going to take place after a period of 70 years had passed by. When we come to the book of Haggai, we are dealing with a prophet who is writing at the end of that period of captivity that the southern tribes were held in by the land of Babylon, and he is writing to a people who have already begun the process of returning to the southern tribes, into that southern region of Judah and Benjamin, which included Jerusalem and uh, the, the environs there. Haggai's message is written for a very specific purpose. Prior to his coming to these people, He had been given a message by God that was essentially a a bit of a rebuke. Because what had happened shortly before he began to prophesy, the, the person who was the leader in Babylon, Cyrus, gave a decree that the people of the southern tribes could return to the land. And so the Bible tells us in the book of Ezra that about 50,000 of them did. There were about 42, 43,000 Israelites, and then there were 7,000 servants that returned with them. And they returned to the land in order to accomplish certain goals. And the primary goal for which this first group came back was to reestablish the temple to rebuild the temple, and then later there would be a reconstruction of the walls, and that would be recorded in the book of Nehemiah. The people would begin to re-inhabit the land and so forth. Well, these Israelites had returned, and there were many of them that had come back, but something happened. They had lost a sense of their spiritual vision. They had lost a sense of drive to accomplish what God had called them to do. 
And as a result of that, they began to uh, build their own houses and they began to take care of themselves without caring for the spiritual needs that were represented among the people and that could be satisfied by the reconstruction of the temple where the people could come to be instructed, they could come to offer sacrifice, they could come to hear uh, the, the, the priests declare the law of God, they would be brought into this realm of worship and fellowship, and now that wasn't happening. And so God sent this man Haggai, who along with another prophet, Zechariah, who would follow very shortly behind him to give a message to these people. And the message was designed primarily for the purpose of shaking them out of their spiritual indifference. They had uh, enjoyed a lot of what the Lord had already brought to them, but now they have become very, very indifferent to him. That prophecy now begins to unfold. And if I may just ask you to do this. Let's look at this prophecy as a caution. Let's read this with an understanding that any time God's people are called to a specific task, it is very, very easy to be sidetracked and to become indifferent to the work that God has called us to perform we will probably see some of the red flags coming up as we look at this. And then we have to be willing to ask ourselves, are we defending ourselves against this spiritual indifference? Are we willing to maintain a spiritual vitality that God has called us to embrace in order to carry out His will, His work, during this period of time in which He has entrusted His word to us? Look with me, if you will, please, at the book of Haggai once again. And what we, what we are initially introduced to is how this spiritual indifference was caused. And if you were to compare this with events that had taken place earlier, as a matter of fact, let's do this. Since I've had you looking through your, your scriptures already, put a marker there in the book of Haggai and turn back to the book of Ezra. Ezra is the book that gives us the record of the decree that Cyrus offered, you'll notice there in the very first chapter, the very first verse of the book of Ezra. Now, Ezra comes right after First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, then Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. If you're in Psalms, you're too far. If you're in First Chronicles, you're not far enough. Move toward Ezra, and then just look up when you find it. Okay, <laughs> I mean, not like this. Oh, maybe some of you are falling asleep. I don't know. Anyway, all right, here in the book of Ezra, notice, here is the decree. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, the command goes on, and as you can see, that, that command continues. And then in the, the chapters that follow, we're actually given a record of the people who made this trip and who traveled from 
the, this land of Persia, the, this Cyrus was the, the leader of the Medes and the Persians. He had been involved in the conquering of the Babylonians. Now this decree is sent where uh, the, the Israelites are able to return. Then you're given this listing of people who return in chapter 2. But when you come to chapter 3, you begin to see something unfolding. It says in chapter 3, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its base and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number of required by ordinance for each day. All right, so let me, let me just reset now what is going on. The people have returned to the land... And as they go back for the purpose of rebuilding the temple, the first thing they do is they get the altar prepared. And they begin to offer sacrifices. But when that happens, they find out that the people who had been left in the land, the people who are now going to be identified as the Samaritans, the people who had intermarried between pagans and the Israelites who had been left behind, they now form a generation of individuals known as the Samaritans, and they begin to oppose the work for which the Israelites had been sent back to Jerusalem to perform. And they are frightened. The Israelites are frightened. They are concerned that there is going to be some kind of military action against them. They're concerned that they are going to have their possessions taken. And in some cases, they're concerned that they may even be losing their lives. And because this opposition rises, their hearts begin to melt. And instead of having a focus on that which the Lord had directed them to do, they begin to withdraw. And as you go on in the book of Ezra, and we're not going to take the time to go back and, and uh, review all this, but what you will find is those Samaritans wrote a letter that went to the now reigning king. And, and you have to have this time frame. Now, I'm trying to put a whole lot together here real quickly. So if, if you get lost in this, um, I don't know what to tell you. Here is Cyrus. Okay, we're going to have a timeline. Here is Cyrus. He dies, and he is exceeded, uh, succeeded by Ahasuerus, and then by uh, Artaxerxes. Okay, you, you got those names. Artaxerxes is now on the throne of the Persians, when the Samaritans resist the work of the Israelites and they first try to sneak in by saying, hey, let us work with you. And the leaders of Israel said, no way. We have been called here by God to do this work and you have no part with us. You have corrupted the faith that the Lord himself had designed and now you want to come and work with us and our answer to you is no. You're not going to have any part with this. So what those Samaritans did, they wrote a letter to Artaxerxes and they said, hey Artaxerxes, not in that vernacular, but what they said was, you, you have to understand something. These people that are back in the land are really a rebellious people. 
Why don't you go back in your records and check out and see how many times they caused revolt? How many times they caused problems? Not only for the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, but they also caused problems for the Persians. And if you go back through the records, you're going to see that. Well, sure enough. Artaxerxes goes back through the, the archives of the, the history and he finds that, yeah, these people have been a problem. Well, they were a problem because they were trying to stand true to the word of God. And that was a problem for the pagans who were trying to overthrow them. So Artaxerxes makes this decree and he says, I want the work to stop. And he sends a letter back to the Samaritans and he tells them, you cause these people to stop working right now, even if you have to take up a sword and do it. And so the message comes to the Israelites that they are to stop the work. Well, you know what they did? They stopped the work. They allowed this discouragement to come their way without resisting it. All they would have had to do was say, let's send our letter to Artaxerxes and have him go back to the records that are kept under the reign of Cyrus so he can see the decree that Cyrus wrote giving us the right to come back and reestablish the worship of the Israelites in Jerusalem. Does, does that all make sense now? Okay, we're all staying with this. So they did have recourse and they didn't take it. And then here's the next rub. Artaxerxes was not on the throne very long, and he died. And instead of pursuing that which God had called them to do, they became very, very comfortable in their indifference. And they didn't do the work that God called them there to do. So this little bit of opposition caused them to stop. Then there was a second issue that came up, and it was an issue of disappointment because what they had heard from the ancestors and what had been passed down to them was a message that said when God gave the land to Israel, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you all remember that phraseology, how the land was flowing with milk and honey? Well, that's when Moses came in. It's not flowing with milk and honey anymore. It is a wild, rough, difficult land. It's a land in which now these half-pagans, and in many cases, people whose goals and purposes were antithetical to what the Lord was desiring to accomplish, those people now inhabited the land. And so this opposition that they met now is bolstered by disappointment. This isn't what we expected we were expecting something very different. And when we got here, what we find is not at all what we had really anticipated finding. In addition to that, they had lost a sense of all that God had done for them. And they were people who had lost a, a sense of gratitude. And now, instead of saying, you know what God had promised is now being fulfilled. He promised that we would be brought back into the land after... Nebuchadnezzar and his armies destroyed us and took us captive. God promised we were coming back, and here we are. But they forgot that it was the hand of God that did this. They forgot that they were a people who through the centuries had been incredibly blessed by the Lord. They had been given all of the provision they needed. As a matter of fact, at this point, they were still living on the 
wealth of Cyrus's initial decree because he had sent with them all these supplies that they would need, not only to survive, but also to complete the work that the Lord had done. But they had forgotten about that. And they were only looking at what the present circumstances were rather than recognizing what God had done for them. And so they're, they're just not interested in carrying on this work. Then when you come into Haggai, the second chapter, you, you find that there, there's maybe a little bit of hope here. Or pardon me, not the second chapter, the second verse of chapter 1. Listen to this. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, All right, now he is going to reveal what's in the hearts of the people. This people says, The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Do you understand what is going on here? They're saying, oh yeah, we're, we're going to get to building God's house one day. It's just not the time right now. Um, you know what? Maybe tomorrow. You know, you know what we call this? Procrastination. They're putting off, saying, oh, listen, we fully intend to do what God's called us here to do. But, you know, it's just not the time right now. Things aren't going all that well. You know, we've got these guys who don't want us building, and man, we've really been disappointed by by what we we found when we got here to the land. And, you know, uh, it just seems as if the Lord's blessing hasn't been upon us recently. And so, now's just not a good time. This isn't the time. We'll, we'll, We'll do it later. And then as you go further into this chapter, into verses 3 and 4, you read a final issue. And maybe this is the one that was most important in their minds after all. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You know what he just said to them? You're more concerned about your own personal comfort than about doing my work. You have built your homes. You have actually made them quite extravagant. You live in lovely dwellings. But my house, my house isn't being taken care of. Haggai was sent to reprimand them. I think the message from Haggai should warn us, should cause us to not fall into the same traps. Because the Lord has called us to do a work. He has placed within our hands the opportunity to tell others about Christ He's put within our hearts a knowledge of him that is designed to grow as we study his word and as we walk with him. Our purpose is to be drawn closer to the image of Christ and to live for the praise of the glory of our Savior and to serve him. And I believe that that many today are doing that. So, let's be careful that we not fall into the trap and become spiritually indifferent. You know how the trap comes? The same way. By opposition. 
Today, in the culture in which we live, the opposition to communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ seems to be on the rise. And we can think of times and we can think of specific situations where those who stand against the truths of God's word have exercised their authority, sometimes legally, sometimes not legally, but they have exercised their authority or their desire to control in order to oppose that which God has called us to do. It, you know, it's not easy anymore to go out and, and tell people about Christ, to go door to door, to have a, a, a program in which you can communicate the truths of God's Word. Some of you recognize um, at Christmas time, we've, in the past, we participated in the Pompano Beach Parade. And those of us who have wanted to hand out gospel information, we're not allowed to step down off the sidewalk onto the road to do that. Were you all aware of that? We're, we're allowed to be on the sidewalk and to try to walk through the crowd, but as we would hand out the gospel information, uh, technically we're not allowed to step down, but I, I know some people did. And uh, I really tried to obey. But you understand there are restrictions and there's opposition. And then you start listening to some of these things that uh, just recently the ACLU has made their way back into the news again, standing against so many things that we would embrace and recognize as principles that God's word declares, not only for his people, but for a nation if it wants to live at peace and in prosperity. And sometimes it's real easy to say, you know what, it's so hard to serve the Lord because there's opposition. Maybe you have personal opposition within your family. Maybe there's people that are close to you who do not want to hear about Christ and what he's done for us. And you know what it has a tendency to do? It has a tendency to make us back off and to not do what God's called us to do. I think there are times that we find ourselves in the same situation, not only with the opposition, but also with the disappointment. I think there are honestly times in which we, as God's people, are tempted to forget how good He has been to us. Has the Lord been good to us? Can you say that if you're suffering from cancer? Some of you can, you know. Can you say that if you've lost your job? That's getting quieter. But hasn't the Lord taken the responsibility to care for His people? Yeah, He has. Um, can you say that if you find yourself in a situation where you expected God to answer a prayer that you put before Him and He said no? And you're disappointed? Have you ever looked at other Christians who have appeared to be so godly and so committed to Christ, and then the next thing you hear is they have fallen into horrendous sin, and you've been disappointed? The Lord hasn't failed. People have. But you know what? We become disappointed. 
And what can happen is when we go through opposition, when we face disappointment, we find ourselves now in a situation where we have to either accept the call that God has placed upon our lives or become spiritually indifferent and begin to withdraw and no longer be involved in that which God has called us to do. Let's be careful not to let that happen. Do you believe that there are people today who have said, you know what, I really do want to serve the Lord. It's just not the right time. Not now. I, I, I fully intend to serve Him someday, but right now, I'm just too busy. Is that a possible trap that we could fall into? Um, I, I want to serve the Lord, but you know, uh, I just, I just don't feel adequate to use the gifts that He has given me for the purpose of building up the body for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we procrastinate and we say, tomorrow I will serve the Lord. And tomorrow never comes. Is that a possibility? And then, is there the possible danger that we have become so focused on our own comfort and our own desire to have that which our neighbors have and just a little bit more and to be a little bit more comfortable that we've spent our time satisfying our own desires? Is that a possible danger? Do you think that these things, these things that came into the lives of the Israelites could cause us to become spiritually indifferent and to lose our vision for what it is the Lord has called us to do? I think I shared this with you before. In our Sunday school class, we went around the class and asked everybody in the class to verbalize. And I think you all ought to do this. I think everybody in here who knows the Savior should do this. Verbalize the purpose God has for you. What is your purpose for being here? Why are you here? Not what is his will for your life at this moment. That's going to be included in the purpose. But ultimately, in the big picture, what is God's purpose for you? Have you ever asked him that? It's real easy to kind of go day by day, isn't it? And to just walk along and, and not really think about the big issues. But Israel had been given a very specific purpose. And they understood what it was. They just got waylaid. Maybe a greater concern is that we don't know what our purpose is. Well, my purpose is to just live day by day and uh, take care of my family. Yeah, that's good. That, that's God's will. Uh, to be an honest worker, yeah, that's good. That's God's will. But what is his purpose for you? Why did he put you here? The Israelites lost sight of their purpose. I hope we never lose sight of ours. 
by the grace of God. Let's pray that individually and as a body of believers, Grace Baptist Church and all of the people who make up Grace Baptist Church will understand their purpose and never lose sight, never become spiritually indifferent so that we no longer accomplish that. Very obviously, we're not going to be able to finish this chapter. Now, don't blame me, okay? But I am trying to be very conscious of your time as we gather around the Lord's table. And I don't want that to be anything that we would ever just rush through. Let's close the book of Haggai for now. I have no idea how we're going to handle this next week. So if you want to find out what sort of spin (laughs) we can use to finish this, I do intend to go on to the second chapter, Lord willing, and we'll see how that goes. But you know what? Maybe this isn't a bad place to stop. Maybe this isn't. Are we aware of the cause of spiritual indifference? Do we get it? Israel gave us a real good picture of how that can happen. What ultimately they do not picture here, but will come through what is happening here, God is going to keep his promise of maintaining someone on the throne of David who will reign forever. And now that the people of Israel have returned to the land, the throne of David is recognized as part of God's plan and ultimately going to be fulfilled in the one who will reign forever, who is identified as the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why God wanted these people so focused on their purpose. It's why he wanted them to have such clear spiritual vision. Because through these people, the Messiah would come. The promised one. Who would be perfect God and perfect man. And would not only live a perfectly sinless life, but would then embrace sin by taking yours and mine upon himself. And then he would die so that the righteous demands of a holy God could be fully satisfied when the people for whose sins he died would accept by faith that work that he accomplished at the cross of Calvary. And they would embrace him as their savior from the consequence and the penalty of sin. And they would believe that he did exactly what the Father said he would come to do. And that is to die in our place. And then to be buried. And then to conquer death itself by rising from the grave and guaranteeing that the sacrifice that he offered was accepted by the Father so that if we by faith receive him as our Savior, we pass from spiritual death into spiritual life, we are regenerated, we are born again, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. Isn't that a great hope 
that we have. Not, I hope, I hope, I hope, but <sighs> my settled assurance. I stand in the sight of God as a perfect individual because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you know Him as your Savior, you are too. That's why we can come into His presence. And it's why we remember Him. We remember the sacrifice of His body. We remember the shedding of His blood so that our sins could be cleansed. And through Christ, by the free gift of God, not by any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. Having taken the one who knew no sin and made him to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Has God been good to us? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we have the opportunity now to gather around this table, I pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be drawn to that work of Christ and that we might recognize afresh all that he did for us in dying, in being buried, and in rising again from the dead. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen.